After that explanation of faith alone, I feel like I should just say amen uh, and sit down, but I'm not going to. So, uh, this is um, a series remembering the 500th anniversary of the, the Protestant Reformation, and if you weren't here the first couple of weeks, let me uh, quickly recap and walk you back through what that is. Uh, in the 1400s or so, uh, some pretty heretical doctrine had entered into the church, and out of that, uh, some pretty heretical practices. And in this day, in the 1400s, there, there wasn't the, uh, what we think of as the Catholic church over here and Protestant church over here that was just the, the church. One of those practices, one of those heretical practices was what's called the selling of indulgences. An indulgence was uh, a way to reduce the amount of punishment needed for sin. The Catholic church uh, defined an indulgent like this, and by indulgent, I mean indulgence. A remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven, which is the faithful, which the faithful Christian gains under certain prescribed conditions. And so those conditions could be certain prayers, uh, certain works that you did, merit that you earned, or the purchase of an indulgence. You could purchase uh, forgiveness, in other words, uh, for yourself or even for others. And this was, without question, a distortion of the Christian gospel. This was a distortion and perversion of the, of the Christian message. And it was this practice that sent a man named Martin Luther over the edge. Martin Luther was a monk in the 1500s. And on October 31st, 1517, he publicized what was known as the 95 Theses, and the Protestant Reformation was born. And from there, we came to have what we think of today as the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. But the goal of the Protestant Reformation was never to divide. This was a protest to reform. The goal was that uh, in rediscovering the purity of the gospel, that reform would be brought to the church and she would be reunited but when she was reunited, she'd be reunited around what we call the five solas. The five solas are this, that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone, built on the Scriptures alone. And so last week, we said that we are saved by grace alone, and then this week, we're saying it's by grace through faith alone, which begs this question. Why, why bring up indulgences this week? Like why, why wait and bring them up this week? Why not bring up indulgences last week? Well, here's the, here's the answer. Uh, all religions, all world religions have a resume. All religions have a resume where, where you say, these are the credentials that I have. Right, when you go into a job interview, you bring a sheet of paper, it's a resume, and you hold it up and you say, hey, these are my credentials. This is why I should be acceptable for what you're looking for. All religions have a, a resume where you hold up a set of credentials, a set of qualifications, and say, hey, this is how I know that I'm acceptable to God. And in the 1400s, the, the resume looked like this. I'm acceptable to God in part because of grace. No, no doubt the word grace is there. In part because of grace, but grace working through merit through certain prayers, or through the purchase of indulgences, that salvation was either 
was either able to be bought or earned. You could purchase or you could earn salvation, but it was never truly a gift of God. It was a gift that you earned, right? It, it's, it, it was like if I uh, sat down with my kids on Christmas morning and I opened up, uh, I let them open up the package and they could see the present for them, but, but there were conditions on the present that came with the conditions of, all right, Easton, um, you're probably not going to be able to do this, but let me lay this out for you. Here's what you've got to do the next two months to keep this gift. It was a gift with conditions. And in the years leading up to 1517, Martin Luther believed that, that this righteous God was a God he could not live up to. He believed that he needed a strong moral and religious resume in order to be acceptable to God, and while he was in the tower at the castle church in Wittenberg, and by the way, we're not going to get a tower next door, although I did ask for it. He wrote this, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my effort. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners secretly, if not blasphemously. I was angry with God. So here's the deal. Luther believed this. He lived most of his life believing my resume doesn't live up. My resume is simply not good enough. Simply not good enough. And I suspect this that if Luther were in this room with us, he wouldn't be the only one. And if he's not the only one, I think it's probably pretty important that we know what belongs on the Christian's resume. What are the set of credentials that we hold up and say, this is why I'm acceptable to God? And then how do we get them? How do we get them? How do we access them? What is on our resume? I think it's probably pretty important that we know the answer, because the answer to that is going to define what we mean when we say, by grace through faith. And so let's go to Romans 4. The book of Romans, uh, chapters 1 through 4, are a treaty on the righteousness of God. And it's this phrase, righteousness of God, that caused so much turmoil in the soul of Luther. It's this this, this turmoil where he believed that the righteousness of God was the, the reason and the means by which God punished all himself and almost everyone because nobody actually lived up to the standards that God set. And then one day, uh, Luther described uh, his wrestling with the book of Romans like this. He, uh, if I can modernize and bring the illustration to today, it was this fight he was having with the book of Romans. And it wasn't, you know, in the MMA octagon because nobody needs that much blood in their life. Uh, but we'll think boxing, okay? And so it's like he's describing this, like, I throw a jab at Romans, Romans jabs back at me. I throw another jab at Romans, and Romans jabs back at me. Until one day, Romans knocks me out. And I see it. What do I see? We're going to pick that up in verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Now, um, who, who is the he in this passage? Who's the he that he's talking about? The, the, the he is somebody named Abraham. 
uh, a man named Abraham. Abraham was a, was a pretty key figure in the Old Testament. Uh, and so for us to really understand what's happening, we need to jump back and to enter into uh, the story of Abraham. Uh, and it goes like this. In Genesis 12, God comes to Abraham. Now, leading up to Genesis 12, uh, this is the very, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. It's the very beginning of the story. Uh, and the narrative goes like this. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the world, and it's good. It's beautiful. There's harmony, and there's rhythm. And then Genesis 3, sin enters the world. There's a fracture, and everything unravels. And by the time we hit Genesis 11, we have a pretty famous story, the, the Tower of Babel, where, where man had said, you know what? We're, we're not going to do this dispersion throughout the earth thing. We're going to build a tower from here up to the heavens. And God came down and said, no, I don't think so. And he dispersed and just scattered humanity throughout the earth, changed languages. And then he went to Abraham. And it says, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, he comes right out the gate with Abraham, and he says, Hey, listen, all that's gone wrong in the world, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to restore it. I'm going to redeem it. I'm going to make it right, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it through you. Through you and through this lineage of yours, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. And as we keep reading, uh, we, we find him zeroing in on, you're going to have a son. You're going to have this son who's going to carry on from generation to generation this redeeming work that I'm going to do through you. But then we hit chapter 15. We hit chapter 15. And the problem is there's still no child. Still no child. And that's when, verse 5, he, he being God, brought him, Abraham, outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said it to him, so shall your offspring be. So here's the, here's the question. God comes to Abraham, and he comes down, and he, and he says, hey, listen, Abraham, I'm, I'm going to audibly, like audibly is speaking with Abraham. Like I'm audibly talking with you. God is audibly speaking with Abraham, but he doesn't need a microphone. He's just talking with him. And he says, hey, listen, I'm going to restore this world through you. All families on the earth are going to be blessed through you. Gonna have this son, it's gonna be this lineage. If God has come down and said this, why why verse 18? Why why open with in hope he believed against hope? Why is that in there? Because this this is um, I hope you understand this about the Bible. This is an incredibly human moment that that uh, Paul, the author of Romans, is talking about with Abraham. It's an incredibly human moment. It doesn't gloss over what was going on on the inside with Abraham. But why that? Verse 19. Here's why in hope against hope. He did not weaken his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Okay, so here's why hope against hope. He he was a hundred and she was barren. And in the text, there's a play on words going on here. Uh, As good as dead, barren, it's the same word in the original text. 
One's a verb, one's a noun. It's, it's the word for death. See, so here's, here's what's going on in Abraham. Abraham was looking at his own life, and he's saying, my life is almost ended. And then looking at Sarah, his wife, and saying, there's no life coming from that womb. This is why I hope against hope. And in the midst of that, it says, he did not weaken his faith. So I think this is pretty important that we define the word faith. Right? Because in hope he believed against hope, yet he did not weaken his faith. We need an accurate definition of what, what word faith here means. Faith is not ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss. That's fear. You understand that, right? That's not faith. Right? Avoiding reality, that, that's fear. Faith is a relationship of trust and dependence with God. Trust and dependence with God. It's why Douglas Moo, a commentator in this passage, he said, Abraham had every reason from a human point of view to give up the attempt to produce a child through Sarah. His faith flew in the face of that hope, which is founded on the evidence of reason and common sense. Hope, as we often use the word, I hope to win the lottery. You're not going to win the lottery. You can stop playing. Yet his faith was firmly based on the hope that springs from the promise of God. See, for Abraham, faith was not the absence of reason. It was an issue of trust. He was looking at his life, looking at the situation, and going, what do I trust the most? And the source of that trust is going to take us right to verse 20. Romans 4.20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. What had he promised? That he had a child and an offspring as many as the stars in the heavens. And so when it says he did not waver, does that mean Abraham never struggled? Does it mean that when we look at the life of Abraham, there were never low points? Does it mean that there was never this, man, I'm at, I'm at rock bottom trying to trust right now? Was that ever a reality in Abraham's life? Of course it doesn't mean that he never struggled. And we don't just know that because we can just assume and Abraham was human, but we can go back to Genesis 17 and find it. It says, I will bless her. This is God speaking to Abraham. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations, kings of people. Peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. When he laughed, this is not, oh man, that's a that's funny, like you're a stand-up comedian, you told a great joke, this is mockery. Which, by the way, I guess if he's laughing, going, God, you're a comedian, that's mockery in and of itself. And said it to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 99 years old, and by 99 I mean 90, bear a child? Abraham's going, man, I just didn't see it. Like, I, I just don't see it. Like, Lord, I, I hear what you have to say, and I simply don't see it. And I want to tell you why this is so encouraging to me. Here's what this means. Not even Abraham had a perfect resume. Not even Abraham, this hero in the faith. Not even Abraham, the man that God came to and said, hey, listen, through you and through your lineage, all families in the earth are going to be blessed. Not even Abraham had a perfect resume. 
which is why John Calvin, who gets a bad rap for a lot of reasons, this pastor in the 1500s, he's opening up this passage and he's saying, hey, hey, listen, Christians, here's what you need to hear. You've got to remember this. He says, let us also remember that the condition of us all is the same with that of Abraham. All things around us are in opposition to the promises of God. He promises immortality. We are surrounded with mortality and corruption. He declares that he counts us just, and we are covered with sins. Calvin is saying, hey, listen, don't, don't lose sight that there's real-life application from the life of Abraham to you. And, and when we look around, we look at the world, and, and listen, in the 1500s, they didn't have the Internet or the news to catch what was going on globally. We do. He's saying this when you flip on the news and you see all that's wrong in the world. It just seems to run counter to the world that God promised he is creating. When you look at your own life, your own brokenness in you, it just seems to run counter to the promises of God. It just seems to fly in the face of it. And I think Calvin is saying that for those of us like Abraham who just struggle to believe that God is for us, that God really is for us. That when we look at our marriage and we go, man, I just don't see a way out. When we look at our life and our relationship with our roommates and the fact that I don't want to just have roommates anymore, we just don't see a way out. Or when we, we're, we lose our job and we can't find another one and it seems like everyone around us is just banking. Just can be hard when we're caught in our circumstances to believe that God really is for us. It can be hard when we look at our own life and go, man, I want to believe faith alone, but when I look at my life, it just doesn't look like the resume that God accepts. And I've got the facade up and I've got enough people fooled, but I'm not fooling myself. For you, Verse 22 is desperately needed. That is why his, Abraham's, faith was counted to him as righteousness. His Genesis 17 faith. His, I'm struggling to believe to the degree that I laugh at God faith. Counted to him as righteousness that his trust in the promise of God is the means by which the righteousness of God gets applied to him. And this is where Romans 4 and pre-Reformation collide. The pre-Reformation, pre-Reformation, the the resume had to include works. You want to be acceptable to God? There have to be certain works on the resume in order to get in. But Romans 4 seems to say that what we need is to trust in the promise that what we need is a relationship of trust with God. And Paul's point, I think, in drawing Abraham out here is to say, this was always the way it went. There was never a day when works got you in. It was always by grace through faith, even for Abraham, which is why he goes on and applies Abraham to us. Verse 23, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Translation, there is only one resume. You want the resume to be acceptable to God? There has always only been one resume. 
There have never been two ways of salvation. There have never been two means of salvation. The difference and distinction between Abraham and us is where we fit on the timeline. For Abraham, he believed in the promise. For us, we look at the fulfillment. This is why he keeps reading, keeps going. It says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed in the promise. We believe in the fulfillment. And that word believe, this is, you, you need to know the word that was used for believe here. Present, active, participle. Present. You know, present. It's an actual reality in my life. Trust of God in my life is an actual present reality. Active. It's something I do. It's not just done to me. And so last week when we said this, hey, by grace, it flows and salvation flows out of the eternal heart of God. That was not intended to say that you and I don't do anything, that we don't have any part in it. It was to say that apart from the grace of God, we have no hope. But it is grace working its way through faith. Present active also means, also means it was not a one-time event. So if your story, if your story goes like this, and I'm not trying to be too confrontational, but I, 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 I do need to love you enough to be honest with what this means. If your story goes like this, um, when people ask me, am I a Christian? I, I say, yes. But I say yes because when I was 16, I went to a camp and um, and there was a night, it was Thursday night toward the end, not the very final night where everybody came down, but the one leading up to a penultimate night where I came down and I believed. The, the way that Paul uses and writes the word believe would be, he, he would say that's not belief. Like if, if, if your life hasn't continued on from there with active trust of God, part of the people of God living out a life of faith, he would say that's not faith then you need to question the presumption that you have that, that you are a Christian based on that. And you need to know that what, what Romans is saying is that it's on the table for you. you. You can't walk right in and live a life of active, ongoing, present, active trust in your life. It's on the table right here, right now, today. Present active means it's a life of ongoing belief, a life of ongoing trust, the belief that my justification, that which, that which says I'm just and worthy of being in the sight of God and the presence of God, that which goes on my resume, death and resurrection of Jesus, that it's that that makes me acceptable to God. You see, here's the thing. Works are on the resume. Works are on the resume. They're just not our works. They're his. It's a life, death, and a resurrection of Jesus. It means my standing before God is not earned by me. It was earned by him. It's not purchased by me. It was purchased by him. Which is why Paul takes us to chapter 5, verse 1, and has a summary statement, really, of, I think, the first four chapters of the Bible, of, not the Bible, of Romans. It says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace 
with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This word peace, it's the word translated from the Old Testament, shalom. Shalom is complete flourishing, harmony, rhythm, everything right. He's saying this because what Christ has done, you can have shalom between you and God. And so when he read the word peace in here, here's what you, you can't think. All right, you're, you're going to misunderstand the Bible if you take the word peace and go, um, hey, it's a decision-making tool. So if peace is um, how I know I'm taking the right job, or how I know I'm marrying the right person, or how I know if this is the right house to buy, or if this is the right roommate to live with. Peace is not a great decision-making grid, by the way. And that's not at all what's going on in here, saying that there's this harmony, shalom between you and God available because of what Christ has done. It's not some inner tranquility. It's, hey, you, you, you want to know if God loves you? Don't, do, do you want to know, like, do you want to know the answer, does God love me? Don't look at your circumstances. Like, don't look at I'm employed or I'm unemployed. I'm promoted, I'm not promoted. I'm single, I'm not single. I've got a bad relationship with my parents. I've got a great relationship with my parents. Don't, don't look at that. Look at the death and resurrection of Jesus. That's how you know. Stop living circumstantially. Start living vertically. That's how you know. And this point that you are justified, that my relationship with God justified by faith in Jesus this was the turning point for Martin Luther. This is what flipped it on a dime for Martin Luther and why he continued writing in that castle in Wittenberg at last. Oh, at last, after boxing with God and Romans, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. And Luther was saying, I, I don't have to be afraid of God anymore. I, I understand righteousness of God isn't just what he punishes people with, but that which he saves me with, and I don't have to be afraid of him anymore. I don't have to be afraid of God anymore. And this realization by grace through faith is what led to Martin Luther's famous saint and sinner simultaneously. You want to know who you are? follower of Jesus, saint, sinner, simultaneously. If I could paraphrase what this means from Tim Keller, pastor in New York, said it like this. This is what it, this is what it means. You're worse than you thought you are, and you are more loved than you've ever dared to imagine. The effects of sin in your life are worse than you've ever dreamed. And yet, and yet, you are more loved than you have ever dared to imagine. That's what this means. Does this mean that works have no place in the Christian life? Of course, that's not what this means. It just means that they're not on the resume. They're not what we put up before God and say, this is how I know I'm acceptable to God. But Ephesians 2 and James would certainly say that they're on the job description. They're not what we do in order to be justified. They're what we do because we are justified. And if you want to know how practical this doctrine is, 
If you want to understand how practical this doctrine is, you, you want to see relationships fixed in your life. Like you want to see um, your horizontal relationships fixed from roommate to spouse to family to neighbor to coworker. Stop living to be loved and start living because you are. Stop creating expectations for everyone else because you don't meet the expectations that you set for yourself. Where there is strife in our parishes, maybe questioning the, am I, am I creating expectations uh, for these people to prove that they love me and care about me versus am I living to love them? Maybe that's a starting point for dealing with any strife inside of our smaller communities. Stop living in order to be loved and creating barriers and means by which people prove their love to you and start living simply because you are. And watch the healing effect of by grace through faith in your life. By grace through faith alone means that grace cannot be bought, cannot be earned. And I pray, pray that we, like Luther, might be able to be a community who lives lives from our love because we're loved, not in order to be loved. Let's pray. Father, I I know uh, that there is both this beautiful simplicity and complexity at the same time to by faith alone, through faith alone. I pray that where the simplicity and the complexity may have gotten lost, I pray that you, uh, you, you might cut through my limitations and pierce the hearts of your people. And I pray we'd be a community who doesn't live in order to be loved, but, but lives because we are. I know that's a work of grace. It's not something we can create any more than we can buy salvation. So we're asking you to do that in us, do that for us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.